to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. Thank you, Jason. We are, um, like I said, going to be jumping into um, a series that uh, I'm just kind of titling Prodigal God. And so if you have... Uh, read the book previously, or if you've heard about it, um, it, it's a simple parable, um, what used to be called, probably by a lot of people, of the story of the prodigal son, or the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus goes into in Luke chapter 11, and so, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 15, um, and so there's a, uh, a book, The Prodigal God, and so if you're here and you want to join us for that, um, we're going to do it for the next five weeks, actually the next four out of five weeks, um, every week in um, the Sundays of August. Um, and I have to admit, so when I first heard about um, Tim Keller, um, the first thing I'd heard, I'd have several people, professors and different people, uh, about you know this kind of the guy that they were kind of calling Yoda, and he just had s- such wise things and all these great stuff to say. And so um, then I, this was the first book that I got. And so guys I really looked up to, they had went on about how Keller had influenced them for years and years. And so I was like, man, I, I, I don't know anything about this guy. He's in New York City, tough context, you know. And so I got this book and I, I man, I was like, wow, really? A little bitty book? Like you're this genius, incredibly brilliant, scholarly guy who knows all these languages planting not only churches in downtown New York, but also like Redeemer City, city to city or whatever. They have a whole church, a whole church planting network. And I was like, really? A little bitty like 100-page book on the prodigal God story? And I was just completely baffled going, man, I, I really lost my respect for some of these people that this guy had challenged him so much. And then I went into the book. And uh, so it has been an incredible um, study for me personally. I'm not using just Tim Keller's stuff in that, but we do have books back there. Um, as we go through this um, series, I want those who, who say that, hey, I want to go through this, even if you're visiting and you say, hey, we're going to come for the next four or five weeks just to learn about this. I hope today you'll get a little bit of a, a precursor to that. Um, but there's books back there, and they are free. If you want to later on, our, our in-house crowd, if you want to give 5 or $10, you can. Uh, you can just do that however. Uh, let me know, but, but I want them to be free. Um, the reason for that, as, as I taught this back at Grace, um, back in at our church in Tahlequah, um, I had more people come up to me afterwards, and I could have predicted it because of the type of church that was. We were known as a very theologically strong, very robust theological teaching church. And so I had people come up to me in tears, many, many people, for the next week, the next two weeks, the next three weeks, the next four weeks. Um, And I only taught, I think I was allowed to teach it one time. So I had to do the whole sermon in one time. And now we're doing five. I think Keller does like eight weeks on it or more. And so I'm doing, I did it in one setting. Um, And so people said, I've never realized the other part of the story. I've been an older brother type my whole life. 
without realizing it. I had a couple of ladies who were literally over, um, and then also when I, at New Beginnings out, in, out here in, in Bigsby, when I, they let, let me teach two weeks of it. Again, people come to me. Um, and it was not as known as, as much as a theologically savvy, doctrinally focused church. It had been for about 20 years a high-end attractional church. So the attractional church growth model, like what the questions mainly asked, what would it take to just get more people to join us? Like balloons and giving away iPads and free candy for kids. And all. So the idea is just what could, would it take? To, and so that was what the church had been. And then we were kind of inserting like, hey, what if we went a little bit deeper here? And so um, I taught two weeks on this, and, and people there even were saying, I'd never thought through um, both ends of that story. So we're going to look at that in a second. But uh, the, the main point being that, um, as, as we're going to bring out in the, in the case that we're talking about this morning, the context of why Jesus launches in to this story that he just makes up. The reason that he did it was because of the crowds that were there. So um, we're going to start session one this week. Um, next week we have a guest preacher, uh, Corbin King. He'll hit one of the um, gospels, but then the next three weeks after that. So I hope that you're able to join us. Please grab a book. And even if you never come back, um, grab a book and take it. Maybe God will open your eyes and see some neat things. But, but let's have some fun. So I've never done this before. Um, so if you're visiting, you're like, oh my gosh. Uh, so it's nothing going to be too weird or anything, but let's, let's do a little bit of group participation. Kids, you get to participate in this also. I've never done this before. It makes everyone nervous. I know, like, oh gosh, I should have went to the bathroom. So um, we're going to get to practice pride and judgment, things that we love. So um, you've seen those t-shirts. I'm the oldest child. I make the rules, right? Have you seen those t-shirts? I'm the oldest in the family. I make the rules. And then the other, the other t-shirt is, I'm the middle child. I'm the reason that we need the rules, right? And then if it's the youngest child, um, I'm the youngest child. Your rules are funny. Your rules don't apply to me, right? So let, let's have some fun group participation. Um, stand up if you, first of all, if you're, an, if you're an only child. Stand up if you were just an only child. No one? Wow. Okay, so stand up if you're the oldest child. Stand up if you're a family growing up, you're the oldest child, and you got to stay standing. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. So, so everyone look around, stare. Oh, I see now why. Oh, that makes sense why they do that and that. And oh. So, so now stay standing. Uh, if you're the middle child, go ahead and stand up. If you're the middle child, and it doesn't have to be the second one, but it could be anywhere. If you're the second of five or third of five, fourth of five. So middle child, look around, judge. Feels good, doesn't it? Now, if you're the, the, the youngest of the family, you can stand up. Stand up, champions. It's all right. So, so look around. So now you see. So that was good. You guys did a great job. Give yourselves a hand. Get a little trophy afterwards. So I grew up as the youngest of four kids. Um, you guys have learned about those birth order type things. We're not going to go into the pop psychology on birth order. There are some fascinating things about that. But I was the youngest of four kids. Um, I was the only boy with three older sisters. My closest sister is 13 years older than me. So they're like 13, 15, and 16. So I was the accident. My wife reminds me all the time. That comes 13 years later. So my parents were much, much older. So everywhere we went, it looked like I had grandparents. And so it was always, you know, the kids asking me like, is that your grandpa? Is that your grandma? So I grew up that way. Uh, but only, so I kind of grew up with characteristics of an only child, 
but also I kind of grew up with characteristics of the youngest child. I refer to that as basically the perfect child, but, uh, and you can even, you could have asked anyone in Salisaw who had talked to my mom on that. If you just talked to my mom, she would agree with that. Uh, Jamie, uh, my wife, uh, she's an oldest child. And so to be honest, um, it's been hard for her learning the ways of the right ways of a younger child and an only child. She's really struggled through that, and so it's taken a while for her to, to, to get to see that. She, she kind of views it as that's about the most hideous, inconceivably evil thing that a po- person could possibly forego is growing up as the, the youngest only child. She has story after story, and she can relate them all to me. So um, for her, those two combinations are, are really um, interesting. But... Um, this story that we're going to see today in, in the, the uh, prodigal God story has two sons. Most of the times growing up, you may have heard the story and that the, the preacher taught the story about that youngest child and he took the father's inheritance and it was a slap in the father's face and he went out and he did all these horrible, horrible things just like all those people out there, right? The people who aren't in church this morning. All those horrible, horrible people. But at the end of the sermon, good news. That son turned around, and that symbolizes repentance for us. And then God is such a good, loving father that he embraces the son and forgave him. Close your eyes, bow your head, repeat this after me. A lot of us grew up hearing that repeatedly, right? That's not the end of the story. That's not even the focal point of the story. And so we're going to see today that Jesus had a different focal point. Um, There's a whole other brother in the story. And at the end of the story... Jesus even leaves a cliffhanger. The older brother, after the younger brother goes out and does all this horrible stuff, and the father embraces him, he comes back and he has this huge party, throws this huge party in this huge festival, put on the robe, put on, give him the ring that symbolizes that he is my son. Let's, let's um, chop up the fattened calf. Let's have this huge feast and celebration. And the older brother stands over, just disgusted, because he had kept all the rules. He had done everything right. He had been the good son who who worked hard at keeping the rules. And Jesus leaves a cliffhanger at the end of it. He doesn't tell us. As the father comes out to the older brother, we don't know whether the older brother also repents and softens his heart. So we're going to see that as we get through. We're going to spend this week just looking at the intro and the context of the situation. Why did Jesus tell this story, and why did he create these two characters? And then who are you in that story? And then also um, week two, we're going to look at the younger brother types. We're going to look at what that looks like. The people who have a a younger brother type mentality of life. And then week three, we're going to look at older brother types. And then week four, we're going to come and we're going to kind of pull that all together. So um, as we look at this, uh, first of all, just the word prodigal, so you can see um, it's an adjective. It means recklessly extravagant, having lavishly spent or poured out everything. So most of us grew up hearing that it was just meant wayward. So prodigal son, remember the first son, the youngest son, he was just wayward. He was wild, rebellious. That completely misses the point of the whole story. 
completely misses the point of the whole story. Jesus didn't base it off of just the wild rebellious types. So the word prodigal is just this reckless outpouring, this, this, this outpouring and lavishing um, outpouring to where there's no fear of me running out. There's no fear of me running out of, uh, of whatever substance I have. So um, the first definition, even if you just Google it, spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully, just extravagant, just pouring it out, just pouring it out with no fear of needing to replenish because I've got so much grace bottled up here that it, I could just pour it out and pour it out and it would just seem just reckless. And, and then it has a, an example of a person who spends in a recklessly ex- extravagant way. So the usual title for the prodigal son really misses the point if you just think of wayward. Uh, that's why, so you guys, most of you know uh, Corey Asbury, the song um, Reckless Love that hit and it just became, is like the number one song on everything, right? And so sometimes in, in our little circle, sometimes if it's popular, we just don't like it, right? Um, and if everyone else likes it, well, that's evidence that the world likes it, so we won't do that. And so you got three categories of people. You got some people who are just like they're over here and they're just they just love it. And so when it comes to Christian worship, they're just they just whatever's out there, they're just taking it in. They're listening to it on their radio. I don't know if people still do that, or your phone or your device or whatever. Um, and then there's people uh, and they're just just enjoying whatever. And then there's people who are on the far other side. And they're very, very worried about what, what songs those are. And so you guys may know. And then there's people in the middle who are clueless. They didn't even know this type of um, kind of judgments were going on. And so you're like, oh, I didn't even know there was a category for this. And so even me bringing up Corey Asbury, for some people in our circles, there will probably be people on, like listening online that just like clicked off. Like he mentioned Tim Keller and Corey Asbury. Um, he's probably burning in hell right now. And so they, they just jump all the way to this far place that, that uh, you've lost me already. I don't don't even want to hear anything else. The whole point of the, the reckless love story, um, just that idea that um, millions upon millions of people who identified with it and grew in their affections for God, this idea that God's love was poured out on us and what God purposely accomplished in the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, that he poured out this grace to a people who do not care about him and to a people who could not have earned it or been good enough. And that seems reckless for God to do that. It seems reckless for God, as we just sang, to go and leave the 99 good ones, safe ones. It seems reckless to leave them and go after the one. And so, and you may be sitting there thinking like, man, I can't believe you're even using this as an illustration. Man, that was my story. That was me. I was the one who went off. So if you just grew up and you always were in the church and, and, and you know, everyone kind of tells me, like, oh, yeah, like, uh, yeah, I, I had some bad times too. This one Saturday night was really rough. Now, I'm talking about if you were so far and separate that you knew that if you died right now, there was no hope for you and you still kept on running from God. I remember our, one of our small groups when we first started Sojourn, we had a friend of mine who came, and he was going through a rough period in life, rough period in life. It's clear that he hadn't been in the church in years and years and years, and we'd been going for months and months. We had about nine or ten months, and so this small group was kind of um, closely knit and everything, and we were really solid theologically, and I remember at the end of the small group one time, someone asked some sort of question to him, and he, he looked up with just tears in his eyes and says, I think for some of you, you've probably forgotten what it's like to be lost. It was better than any lesson we'd had. 
it just hit. We just sat there in silence. Didn't know what to say. I think for some of you, you forgot what it's like to be lost. And so that's why this, 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 these words in this song even, God has this overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away and give yourself away. When I was running from God, he was giving himself and pursuing me and overflowing with grace and love and grace and love. It seems crazy to do that. But we know God is not truly a reckless, unwise, wasteful type of God. We know that he is going to accomplish what he wants with his salvation. And truly, guys, if, if I'm over here enjoying this song, singing this, God, I love you so much. I can't believe that the reckless love that you poured out on me. And in our circle, we're going, I can't believe. Do they not know how bad this song is? Do they know what church this guy goes to? Do they realize that there's, there, there's a couple of words or there's a couple of things? Do you see what we do? Do you see what we do? And hey, this is easy. This is like shooting fish in a barrel. I could list out a hundred different categories. So you may be going, I don't think that's me, Sankey. I, I love that song also. There may be a hundred other categories in your life that's the same thing. And so we'll get into that a little bit. God has this incredible love going on. So Jesus tells this story of um, these two radically different brothers, both separated from God. Both find themselves far from God, but it looks very, very, very different. And so I hope that in this study you're able to see some of that. Um, if we look negatively at, at those words, um, uh, prodigal, um, some of the words that pop up are spendthrift or imprudent or wasteful. Uh, and we can see why 90% of the teaching resulted in focusing on only the wayward, spendthrift younger brother who imprudently, wastefully went through all the father's inheritance foolishly. We, we see that. But if you look on the positive side, we know God's not unwise or wasteful. He is exact and intentional and purposeful in all that he does. So if we look at it positively, we can see this beautiful list of terms flowing out of the father. Generous, abundant, unsparing, lavishly, bountifully, all those things with his grace to us. Um, so let's read um, the first section of Luke 15. If you want to this week, go ahead and read the section on the, the prodigal um, sons um, the, the, and the prodigal God where he's overflowing this. But, but we're going to just start out in Luke chapter 15, and we're just going to cover those first few verses and then the first two parables. We're not going to really hit on the two, first two parables. I'm going to bring out a couple of sections I want you to see in the first two parables. Um, but, but we're going to focus on mainly what was the context that caused Jesus to tell these stories. So, in, verse 15, in chapter 15, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them? So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing, just like we just sang. 
And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. So I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God before one sinner who repents. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you that whether we're oldest or youngest, whether we're middle, whether we're younger brother types or older brother types, that Jesus, the very one at the center of this, from flowing out of the love of the, the triune God, decides to tell a story for both types of people. That he is trying to tell younger brother types there is a just beautiful, overflowing grace for you. Though you've blown it all, though you've failed many times, there is never more sin than what grace can cover. And for the older brother types who are keeping all the rules and doing it for their own sake sometimes, there is more grace that will cover you. You need grace. So, Father, would you help us in this to see why you told us this parable, why you wrote this parable in your, your scriptures? Would you help us to have opened eyes to maybe blind spots that have been there for years. Guide us through this. In your name we pray. Amen. So, we see there, first of all, it starts with Jesus sitting amongst these two types of people. So if you look there, it says that, notice this, that the tax collectors and sinners, and that, that's on one side, all these tax collectors and sinners, and notice what it says about them. They were drawing near to hear him. Now, first of all, we just have to, Ask that question, what was it about Jesus that they were drawing near to him? Because it's, it's understood at Luke 15, this far into his ministry, the three years that he had ministry, um, this is not at the very beginning. This is going on sometimes. So he had been traveling around a village after village. He had been doing miracles. He had been performing all kinds of miraculous works. And all the point of those miraculous works was to draw people in. So then the gospel message about the kingdom being here that repentance is needed. That's what those things were supposed to do, is draw people's hearts in to hear that message. So Jesus has been going around. So people, even, even though he's been preaching truth to them and telling them to repent, he's doing it in such a graceful way that people are still, who are separated from God, are still drawing to hear Jesus. And sometimes in our churches, that's just not the way it is. If you've been churched for too long, you have no people around your life that are still living off in horrific sin. And sometimes that's because we have isolated and separated so much because we're afraid that if we're around them, we're going to be tainted, that we're accidentally going to just be tainted by something that rubs off on us from them. That's not an understanding of the gospel. But we've done that so much. And so notice that these tax collectors and sinners, that's the first group. Um, tax collectors and sinners... Most of you have heard the story about tax collectors, um, that they were the ones who were of Jewish descent, so they're, they're hometown boys, right? They're Jewish people, but Rome was in control, and Rome was saying, I want to collect taxes from everyone.
money, 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 right? That rule of the day. So a Jewish person steps up and gets appointed this role, and their role is to go to, from house to house exacting taxes from people. So you're already a, a bad person just because you are a Jew coming to Jews and taking money to the Romans, right? But then secondly, most of us know the story that these tax collectors, it was not only the taxes that they owed to Rome, the tax collectors could go above that. They could say, hey, you owe 10% to Rome, I'm collecting 15%. And the other 5%, they got to collect themselves, right? So they got to keep all that themselves. And so um, they were very rich usually. They were the ones who had a lot of money. And so everyone knew around the, the, the village and community that the reason they're rich and living in, in lots of plenty and in great prosperous living is because they're taking from us. The Roman taxes are already bad, but they're living off of um, our own survival, basically. And so some people were very poor. So the tax collectors were not a liked group. You could, you could fill in the blank with whichever type of person that you can't stand. If, if that's these liberal Democrats, if that's these solid, staunch conservative Republicans, if, if you just hate one of those, that's that guy that you would want nothing to do with. If it's people that you just can't stand, if that's Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus, if that's um, whatever category of people, they were just despised, Right? Those were the tax collectors. And interestingly, Jesus is loving to them and great to them. And he's telling them the truth, but he's doing it in a way where he's so graceful that they're wanting to come and hear. Um, the next group, just sinners. This is a common thing we see with Jesus. Some people, some preachers take it way too far, and they, they kind of like push you like you're evil if you're not just out there partying with people. And, and so you should be going and doing all these other things. We should have people over our house of all kinds of backgrounds. We should be hospitable to all types of people trying to get the gospel to them. We should be joining them in the bleachers and in the community events and, and serving different ways alongside people. We shouldn't be thinking that we have to be separated physically, geographically, to remain pure. That, that, that's, that's a horrible thinking, right? And so that's what, that didn't work for all those years of the monastics. And so um, these sinners, um, they were gathering around, and this Jesus guy has been really graceful to them. He, he's been loving them, he's been teaching them truth, but yet they still are drawn to him. And Luke contrasts that first group with the second group. The Pharisees and the scribes are standing over here. Can you believe this guy eats with those type of people? And off of that grumbling, those little sentences, as Jesus is sitting, having fun, listening to their crude jokes, oh, I don't know if I'd say that, and, and guys spilling stuff on them and probably puking in the floor and doing stuff, and, and Jesus isn't like, foul person, get away from me. I should cast down fire on you. Like, no, he's grace-oriented, but he hears this over here. He hears this grumbling. So based off of that, Jesus enters into this story. So from within that context, based off of that type of heart attitude, that's when Jesus launches into these stories. Um, Sometimes in keeping all the lists, all the rules, something happens. We begin to be blinded by our self-righteousness. 
We have these huge glaring blind spots where our self-righteousness and our judgmental attitudes of, I can't believe they do that. I can't believe. And that's what Jesus is going to dive right into. And so his point in bringing up those first two parables, the lost sheep and lost coin is, hey, don't kid yourself, Pharisee. You could care less about the lost coin. You would never go after the lost coin. You would never go after the lost sheep. His point of, come rejoice with me, is, Pharisees, don't, don't joke yourself. You're disgusted by things that they do. You couldn't rejoice with them. Now, you would say that you're all about the lost repenting. Be honest with yourself. You're disgusted. So he's bringing that out with this, come rejoice with me. Oh, you can't. Why would you want to rejoice on something like that? You've forgotten what it's like to be lost. So we need to take some time to understand Jesus' intent um, on telling these three stories. We need to know why God gave 32 famous verses. But we've got to connect the point of the three stories with the heart of the hearers. The whole point is the heart of the hearers. So I'd say to you today, the whole point is the heart. So some of you are already like kind of disgusted or probably like, oh, I don't know this Tim Keller guy. I don't want to read this book. I've heard some stuff on the internet. So you're missing the heart. Or you're worried about, um, I brought up Corey Asbury and Reckless Love, and you tuned me out when I did that. And so you're missing the heart that the Holy Spirit might want to identify. And we'll see week two and three, the reward of God himself for younger brother types and the reward of God himself for older brother types. So these scribes and Pharisees, the second group, we know scribes were the ones who went back into the Old Testament. They were way back in the Old Testament. They were responsible for interpreting and regulating Jewish law. The Pharisees, most people don't realize, they, Pharisees and Sadducees came, around, came about in around the 150 B.C., so about 150 years before Jesus comes on the scene. The reason the Pharisees come on the scene and the Sadducees, if you remember who was ruling the world before the Romans, Greeks. We just went through Daniel. So we saw the four kingdoms that were going to come. Remember that? So Babylon, uh, Babylonia, and then the Medo-Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. Daniel said, here's what's going to happen. We're in this period of transition from the Greeks, Alexander the Great, into the Roman period, right? And so the Greeks are ruling the world. What happened with the Greeks? Man, I'm, the Greek language, we're thankful for that, right? So there's a lot of things that the Greeks brought to the table that were good. A lot of things were brought that were bad. In the middle of that, they were um, having incredible influences on culture. So what do you do as a Jewish person when they're bringing their Greek gods into your city and they're setting up temples? To your Greek gods, we ain't doing that. We ain't doing that. So in good intentions, the Pharisees became this group of people who were zealous and pious and were wanting to be the ones who clung to and protected the Old Testament Bible. Many people don't know the Pharisees were the ones who actually believed the whole Old Testament was the authority. There's many sub-Jewish groups that didn't believe in the whole Old Testament. The Sadducees only held to the first five books, the Torah, the first five books. Pharisees said, no, all of the Old Testament is game. All the Old Testament is from God. It's inspired. We not only are protecting that, we believe in those, and we want to apply those to life. So the Pharisees get a really bad rap, but they were actually the ones who were saying, we believe that we've got to stick 
speak with God through this. Even though culture's changing, even though these Greeks are bringing in false gods and all kinds of horrible things for our families, we're going to be resolute in holding to solid doctrines, to solid scriptures. Most, I never grew up hearing that. The Pharisees are not these horrible, 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 evil people. There are people who are clinging to God's word and saying, we need to be the ones who are the, the pietists, the purists who come on later. So you got to understand, the Jewish, here's these five groups that people don't know about. Um, I have a little slide that shows the um, groups so in, in all through centuries, just so you'll know, it wasn't 2016 when um, liberal lefts and conservative rights come up. So there's always been liberals, there's always been conservatives, left, right. You've had um, all kinds of groups. So the far left were the Herodians. You can you imagine, you know where that name comes from? From Herod, right? They were the ones who followed Rome. They're Herodians. And so in that, they supported Herod's dynasty. They wanted Roman rule. They, were, they fought for political power. Uh, they were the cultural compromisers, so like the tax collectors. But then next to them were the Sadducees. They were the religious establishment. They had the high priests and the Levites and the priests, and they were over temple worship. So when you're a Jew, and these are your religious people, but Rome is the, the, the government over you, the Sadducees were the ones that were over the, the priests and the tabernacle and all those things. They emphasized rituals. They were kind of the upper class. Um, they were anti-supernatural, and they believed only in the Torah. Well, that's on that far kind of left side. On the far right side, the far conservative side, you see the zealots. So you've heard of the word zealots before. They were so zealous. They were radical. They were radical nationalists, meaning just pro-Israel, pro-Israel, pro-Jew, right? Know any people like that? Radical activists. They were the radical activists on, well, we've got to go and march. We've got to go and do this. They despised Roman rule. They used, they used force to fight change in political systems and scope. They were very non-trusting and, and believed in all these conspiracies. So they were on the far side. So you have these people on the far edges. In the middle was the Pharisees. They were, they, they, literally, the word Pharisee means separated ones. They, they controlled the synagogue. They emphasized scriptures. Uh, they were the middle class. They believed all the Old Testament was authoritative. They were theologically orthodox. They had two main schools, Hillel and Shammai. And so Hillel was the moderate who, who emphasized compassion, graceful with rules, accommodated Roman rule. But the Shammai, that group was the conservatives, Truth only, rigid with rules, opposed Roman rule. But the Pharisees were this middle group. Uh, the, the slide didn't come out, so it's kind of out of bounds there. But then they had the Essenes. And so they were, just, they were the ones who completely separated. They were isolationists in the name of the Lord. So do we not have all of those groups in Christianity, subgroups in Christianity, or, or even cults? Some of you may have come out of those type of things. So we have that today. So don't think it's new. So when the news starts or social media starts, just, just remember, just a point of reference. So that's why I don't get all hyped up and get all worried because I'm going, it, it, nothing new under the sun is what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. It, this isn't new. We're not the first ones who are having to face culture changing. We're not the first ones who are having to face um, um, left-wing or right-wing people taking over and changing things. So there's a way of trusting God in the middle of that. And so um, that was the situation. The Pharisees stood for good but what happens when the bad guys, what we know as the Pharisees, are actually good? So here's some things. I can't spend time on this, but I want you to know these. I have several points here. Um, these are the things that the, 
the Pharisees that we've kind of grown to hate or, or think, oh man, they're the horrible guys, they actually had some really good things. These are things that most people don't know about the Pharisees. Uh, if you contact me, I can send you some more information. There's a whole lot on this, but I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but I want you to see this because um, these are the things that the Pharisees thought were essential. So first of all, let's get back to the Bible. Our, our, our culture is being um, taken over by the Greeks. We've got to hold on to Scripture, the Old Testament. Um, also, correct doctrine. The Pharisees, uh, they believed in correct doctrine. Jesus even partially affirmed their orthodoxy. One time he, he said um, that, that you guys need to, um, if you don't live as perfectly and as righteous as the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he was saying, hey, they've got solid orthodoxy. But then he goes on to kind of really rebuke them. So what happens when you have correct doctrine, but you fail at applying it in life? Because when we have correct doctrine, when we think about application of it, we still we usually go to little bitty bullet points and more and more points and more and more lists and more and more lists. Not thinking of, oh, hold it, what if my list is taking me away from the whole idea of love? So that was part of the problem. But these, these Pharisees were known. Their view on the scriptures in life, they were zealous to apply their knowledge of God's word to everyday life. And not only for themselves, they wanted all Jews, all people to apply the Old Testament scriptures to their life. Know any evangelicals that that's what our goal is? That's what we want in life? Doesn't sound bad, does it? Um, not, um, they, they revered, they studied, they memorized, they quoted, and they labored at interpreting the scriptures correctly. They had a very high view of God's word and sought to obey it to the most stringent degree. They were righteously observable lifestyles. Um, um, Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now remember Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he was not trying to say, if you can live this out, you get to go in. He was saying, this law will crush you. You cannot live this out. So when he says, unless your righteousness is higher than the scribes and Pharisees, well, he's saying like, theirs won't get them in, and you even being even better or gooder than them, it's not going to get you in. You need me. You need to repent. I am salvation, not, not your works, is what he was showing in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But they wanted pure worship. Um, they're, they're, they're attract they weren't attractional of the day. Um, they were against the false ritualistic motions that, that, that some Jews were caught up in, just going through the rituals and the motions. Um, so they desired to have um, the, a format where the temple, um, the, the temple was not the significant piece, nor priests, but everyday people were able to worship God. And so they had synagogues, and they would teach the word, they would pray, they would exposit the word and explain it, they would serve one another. They had these five um, focused areas, their prayer life, separated lives, um, fellowship, generous with wealth, active proclaimers of the gospel. Matt, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 23, they will travel over land and sea for a single proselyte. So they worked hard at going to get proselytes. They were socially responsible and they were peace promoting. But by the way, devout Muslims and Hindus Devout Buddhists, Mormons, and Hare Krishnas, they're all able to do the same thing. So these Pharisees that we've heard are so horribly evil were actually probably our friends. They would fit really well in our churches from this list, wouldn't you say? Maybe Pharisees are living very well among us today because these sound like some really good church members, right? 
So when we go into the prodigal of God story, we don't want to do the typical thing and, and see these Pharisees. They're the ones who killed Jesus. You're right. They were part of the ones who killed Jesus. But we're going to get to the very heart of, of why Jesus was so offensive to them. And so this may be highly offensive to you. Um, what happened with these Pharisees? In the human heart, God created it for worship, right? So remember, uh, people have said that before, uh, C.S. Lewis and some different guys have said, uh, the heart is an idol factory, right? It was created, we're, we're designed to want to worship stuff. It's always at work. Therefore, idolatry, other things that pop up. Instead of God being central, other things pop up, and so it's an idol factory, and we have to be aware of that. Um, with very good intentions at the beginning, striving to please God in more and more tiny little matters, it leads to the idol of self. We end up not enjoying God, nor gaining more of God's approval, but um, it feels and looks so good for me to be so different than others. It feels so good compared with that guy, that family. Do you see the way their kids act? Do you see the way they're raising their family? See what they drive? I'm really careful. You know, don't want to have something that's so low that it breaks down all the time, but had something really nice, this, 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 those type of cars are very materialistic, so we're going to be really careful. Hey, we want to be careful with what neighborhood we live in. We want to be careful who, who we hang out with, what these people wear. All the way down to man, these you know, mommy blogs. Uh, if you're a new mom who has a one-month-old and your baby's having a hard time breastfeeding, like there's 10,000 blogs out there making you feel like a horrible mom. If it's just not working, you have to use formula like, oh gosh, you and your kid will end up separated from God for all eternity. Like, right? So moms are just like crushed by all this judgmental stuff and it's inside the church. It's exhausting. And yet, we, we come with more little boxes and more little lists and more little lists and more little lists thinking, hey, God, if I can keep all these lists, uh, you're more approved, I'm more approved of, right? You approve of me, you approve of me. And some people over here just enjoying Jesus. Don't even know about the lists that we're keeping. Don't even know about the stuff that we're so worried about. So the identity of the Pharisees, they were about isolation and separating. Um, they, they weren't about enjoying God so much. It was about keeping these lists. So um, look, listen to the, the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Jesus addresses them in Matthew 23. So we know now they're not these horrible, horrible people, but actually they're, they're some decent people. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, this is Matthew 23. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so highest place of authority. Everyone respects Moses. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but, do, do, but not the works that they do, for they preach but do not practice. Remember what I said? They have all the knowledge, but when it comes to the practical application of it, Jesus says don't, don't follow it. They're, they're adding to it. They're going above and beyond Scripture. They're missing the point of love, to look really good and keep all these lists. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move with one, their finger. 
They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries, these things that would hang from their hair and their robes broad and their fringes long, these robes. And so you'd walk into a place in the same way we're able to identify, oh, that's, you know, Under Armour, that's Nike, that's whatever. Um, theirs were extremely um, visible to show their spiritual clout. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. He goes on to talk about how don't call them rabbi. Verse 12, he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. How about we kill this guy, Jesus? He just exposed everything about us. He just opened us up and exposed everything. We're keeping all the rules. We're keeping all the lists. And so later on from Luke 15, later on towards the end, this is where Matthew 23 is, and he's exposing the false heart of the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. That tick you off a little bit? Hey, church, I see everything that you're trying to do. Nice clothes. Glad you made it here on time. Got your kids all looking really good. Hey, don't worry about going out and try to evangelize the area because you're going to hell and anyone else that you would try to bring with you, they're going to hell also. Drops the mic. Man, Jesus hasn't read James, you know, chapter 5. We're like, let's let our words be careful. And so, like, is he sinning here? No, he's addressing a heart matter. Very confrontive, very difficult to hear. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. So he's talking about this, making these oaths. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Look at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. So, so these expensive things in their day, we see you tithing. We get it. But you've neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. So you see, Jesus, all in chapter Matthew, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus comes down hard on the Pharisees. So what is it that he's trying to say to them? Is Jesus okay with sin? Is he lowering the bar of sin? Because that's the natural tendency. So when someone starts talking about grace, like we need to be more graceful, well, 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 we can't. Like, don't we need more rules? Don't we need more standards? You see? We're afraid that when you say we need to be more grace-oriented, people are saying like, hey, let's just, no boundaries. We can just go and do freedom. Freedom falling off the cliff into sin. And that's not what is being said at all. Um, is Jesus not wanting them to be obedient the Jews had a, a common law according to Leviticus. So in this little 
um, story that he tells in, in Matthew chapter 23 when Jesus rebukes them for this. And he says, um, um, you have strained at a gnat, but you've swallowed a camel. You should have done these other things. The Jews had a law that forbade eating any flying insects that did not have jointed legs for hopping. So there's this tiny, tiny law in Leviticus that you couldn't eat an insect if it didn't have legs that were jointed for hopping. So they would take cloth because of the fear of accidentally swallowing a gnat. So that's what Jesus is getting onto them about. You're so caught up that you will strain at a gnat, meaning you'll put this cloth over this thing with, because of your fear of breaking this tiny little law in Leviticus, but yet you completely have no problem sinning. You swallow a camel when it comes to having no justice for people, no mercy, no compassion, no love. Do you see why these people wanted to kill Jesus after a few months of this? So I wonder how many in the church today keep the rules of attendance, tithing, no cussing, no, no stealing, no adultery, no homosexual sin, no drunkenness, but are filled with envy and lust and pride and greed and gossip and slander, slothfulness, laziness, gluttony, deceitful scheming for selfish gain. All goes on. I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. Can you believe the type of parenting they do? Can you believe they decided to homeschool their kids? Oh, my gosh. Can you believe they're going to public school? Oh, my gosh. Can you believe they're going to private school? Oh, my gosh. She is not breastfeeding. She's using formula. What was he thinking letting us sing that song? Doesn't he know that guy had like an Instagram picture like with a girl in a bikini. Why are we singing that guy's song? Like that's to the level we're at. And yet here's people over here just enjoying Jesus, amazed by his grace, getting the point. And we have these strict rules and little bitty boxes. Jesus is not only warning hearts for us and for them, he's completely deconstructing little boxes, little categories. I understand the right desire to please God, to pursue God, to walk in holiness and purity, to live in obedience to God's word, to, to grow in Christ-like maturity, but it seems like we're, we're so much like the Pharisees. We have a thousand little subcategories where we strain at a gnat so we don't accidentally ingest something unclean. Oh gosh, we accidentally fill in the blank, and it's controlling us. But we're not free to enjoy God. He gave us salvation to be free, and yet sometimes in our circles, we thought that maybe after we got saved, the, the more tighter our little bitty lists were, and the more narrow our little bitty lists were, and the more boxes that we were able to put around ourselves, that would lead to enjoying God more. And now you've got a whole group of um, Christians, evangelicals, who are not enjoying God, who would admit, no, I don't. I feel like God is very distant. I don't feel close to God. I struggle with the fact that God loves me. It wasn't supposed to be that way. 
And Jesus is trying to break down those categories. So, the immediate argument is, well, don't we need to be careful in what we're exposed to? No one's saying that you're not. Jesus here is not saying, go live it however you want to. So when I even bring this up, there's people, just know, so if you're immediately, you're already thinking that way, like, oh, it sounds like he's saying, I can't tell you how many times I would have with college students the thing of just like teaching on just alcohol, because they're college students, right? So it shocked them, and they were just like blown away. I got emails from parents, they'd go home, you know, different crowds, some celebrating, some getting all upset, but like on, on alcohol, like, hey, it's a clear, the Bible, it's not a gray area, it's not a maybe, it's a clear yes, you're going to be served wine in heaven, but so if, if you do not need to partake, you don't have to partake, alcohol can lead to all kinds of things, but just know in the Bible, biblically, it's a clear, 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 clear yes. You know how many hundreds of conversations I've had with that with very firm, rigid, Bible-believing people? Some would come and like say, it sounds like you told everyone to go get drunk. Wow. I, I just said, Jesus is turning water wine. Here's all these cases, and please, 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 if you don't drink, I'm never telling you to go drink. I'm not saying you should drink. If you want to raise your kid and say that you can't do that, it's a hideous thing. It destroyed my mom's life, so it was, it was the devil uh, from the you know, Billy Madison movie or whatever it was. Uh, like My mom was fearful of alcohol. And so then you learn out afterwards that like it's not as bad as what she was saying. So here's this area that's not gray, it's a clear yes, but we have taught it as this horrible, horrible thing. And so then people find out that, oh, it's not that bad. Do you know how many people I've had come up against me with on plurality of elders, on reform doctrine, on um, pastor, women pastors, on um, alcohol, on any number of things? And they had a firm biblical stance. I know what this is. I am right. I am right. And then six months later, nine months later, they're like, man, I guess I was just listening to what I've been told. I'd really never searched the scriptures on it. And I wasn't thinking that there's, there, there's 10 different views on that. And all of these 10, they're all orthodoxy. Now, there are the far outsiders and the far outsiders that are both wrong. But here, here's 10 ways to raise kids. Have the freedom of that. Enjoy your kids. Enjoy your kids. They're acting up. It's because they're too. You're not failing as a parent. They're screaming, throwing a fit one. It's because they're two. You're not failing as a parent. You, you, they shouldn't, you know, they, it's not that they have to have all the, the, the memorized scripture. Those are, those are good, but they might memorize all the scriptures and win their little star at their little Sunday school class and then be a, just a hellaciously rebellious 14, 15, 16-year-old. So, so, so don't, don't worry about all these tiny little things. Be faithful, and you don't have to be so scared about all the tiny little boxes. And our circle is exactly what Jesus is addressing. We're surrounded by it. I spend most of my time deconstructing those boxes that people have added to Scripture or life to make them maybe more approved or, or, or more pleasing to God. We don't have to be that way. We, God wants us to enjoy some of the beautiful things in this world. And again, when you begin to say that, oh, well, you're saying that we're just going just, to, it doesn't matter what we do? Not at all. Not at all. No one said that. Well, don't I need to be careful? Yes, we need to be wise and careful in the way that we don't just throw your kids out to uh, some, some dangerous place where they're walking the streets, right? But we, we need to think through all the lists that we're making. 
Sometimes it's not about the gospel at all. It's not about trusting God at all. It's not, not about resting in Christ at all. So there's this, this case where you're doing everything the Bible requires, and then some, extremely strict and God-centered, yet very far from the heart of the Father. And that's what Luke 15 is going to show us. Jesus dives in and is basically telling these Pharisees, I'm telling you these three stories because you're not seeing the picture here. You can keep all the rules. You can work so hard at creating extra lists, even above biblical standards, thinking you're doing everything right, and you can be so far from God. So that's what we'll see in Luke 15. These are good, good people. I'm afraid that a lot of us, we love, love being really good, good people. Can't believe they can't believe they're doing that. Wish we could compare God. Wish we could compare here. And we don't realize we're doing it in, in a hundred little bitty ways. So as we go through this, this is as we get into the book, you'll see this is from Keller. T two key perspectives. Religion says, I obey, I keep all the rules, therefore I'm accepted. Anyone feel like that's how they were taught to grow up? I obey, I keep all the rules, therefore I'm accepted. I obey, I clearly keep the rules, therefore I'm accepted. That's religion. The gospel says, I'm accepted. Now, I couldn't be. You know what I've done? You're accepted. Overflowing. Overwhelming. It's not going to stop. I'm not worried about stopping it. This overflowing, beautiful stuff. And hey, after, you, after you get right and you, and you get in your little Christian circle and you get saved, hey, you're still going to blow it. And I'm still coming and loving you. I'm still sitting here just overflowing with this extravagant love, blowing you away with this. The gospel says I'm accepted completely, exhaustively by what Jesus accomplished in my place on the cross Therefore, I'm amazed by that, and I want to obey because I understand what sin is, and I understand that I love him now. So if that's been you thinking through, I need to just get it all stricter. I need to get it all more lists. I hope that helps. As we go to our time of the Lord's Supper, I want you to think through. So some of you may have um, had a, a little difficulty. This is very much in your face. This is very much um, not just like one of these, hey, it's encouraging. We're all doing great. In fact, if you think you're doing great, maybe you need to reconsider. But if you were sitting there today and you're going, man, that was really just offensive, you need to consider the, the, the two distinctions between conviction and being offended. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, um, let me never fall into the vulgar mistake of dreaming that I am persecuted when I'm just merely contradicted. Someone contradicts your stance? Uh, that's ridiculous. Uh, they're persecuting me. I'm offended. So if, you, if you're already just offended, you're not giving room to the Holy Spirit. Your, your, your heart is hardened already. And there's people that will do this. As soon as I started talking about Tim Keller or Corey Asbury, it's like, I'm done. Right? I'm already out. Uh, won't come back. 
Jesus was speaking to a group of people who ended up killing him because he was confronting some of those things. So you, there will be some who will not allow hearts to receive conviction over this. Um, your defense mechanism started going off as soon as I started talking. That's because this gets at the very core of your heart and identity. It threatens your identity. These rigid rules and more tighter lists um, based off of fear and control is the core of who you are and how you operate. So it's extremely offensive. It's exactly why these are such huge blind spots that have been established so long in our lives. Spiritual pride is the shower that you take. It's the towel that you dry off on and then the clothes that you wear. Spiritual pride without realizing it in our circles. So some will just not allow hearts to receive conviction. Some will never want to admit that they're wrong. Another thing about the older brother types is we're just never wrong. I'm very intelligent. I've got my biblical stance on this. Therefore, here's where it lands in. Anyone who's different than this, you're just wrong. You're just wrong. Do you know how many conversations I've had with people who are rigidly, biblically right? And then six months later, nine months later, completely change their stance and realize, oh, there's five views here that are solid. So think through where your heart's at. What this does is this shuts down spiritual growth for you. It shuts down enjoying God. It shuts down enjoying others because as soon as you, you, you like them the first two times you see them, and then they mention something like, yeah, so I, I worked on the Obama campaign, like, whoa, what? I did this. Oh, we don't do that. We're done. Yeah, I let my kids fill in the blank. And we're done. That's the church. So, I hope you will think through, where's my heart at? Is my heart receiving these type of things? Or is there just some rigid hardness to my heart? Is my life consumed by trying to fix more and more little boxes and more and more little lists? Or am I truly letting the gospel reign? So let me pray. We'll go to the Lord's Supper. (coughs) Father, we thank you for Luke 15 and Matthew 23. It's insider language. It's it's you speaking to those who are in the church, who are in um, the gathering. And yet, there's scary language in there showing that that our hearts can be trying to keep it all together and keep all the rules, but yet be so far from you. Some of us are so blind, Father, to how we control things, how we um, make more and more extra-biblical lists. God, would you just bring forgiveness? Would you grant us forgiveness? Would you bring repentance? Would you bring conviction? Father, I pray that you would protect people from the um, danger of justifying. When blind spots are brought up, justification happens quickly. Would you help us with that? Would you guide us as we go into the time of the Lord's Supper? In your name we pray. Amen. So as you go um, from this week, think through those aspects. Go back to Luke 15. We're going to be in Luke 15. Just read through it several times. Grab one of the books. Um, 
anytime we're gathered together, there's always different crowds. There are the people who are just clearly not saved. There are the people who are clearly saved. And then there's people who maybe had made a commitment to Christ early in their life, and now they're kind of wondering where they're at. And so at Sojourn, we practice uh, the, um, the style of um, Lord's, Lord's Supper through its open um, communion to where if you're visiting, you're free to take part with us. If you're not running from church discipline from another church, if you're not in just outright pattern sin where you're just living in sin and no cares about that, you're able to um, partake of that. If you're a child of God, if you are saved and you've been baptized and you're not running from God and, and church discipline somewhere. Um, if you're not a believer and you, you think through this, and uh, I literally had tons of college students and some adults come to me after teaching through even just uh, one session on the, the, the prodigal God and said, what if I'm not even saved? What if I've been living a salvation that was based on works? And so I didn't just try to rescue them and say, oh, no, you're fine. Don't worry about it. No, man, take, take some time. So if you're not a believer, we would tell you, don't partake with us at the Lord's Supper, but instead take this time to go to the Lord, to cry out for the first time for salvation, to cry out to him that you need repentance, confession. So um, as we go um, to take, we um, have, the, have it on the sides over there. Um, you can do it as families. You can do it as individuals. Um, you can um, just stay in your seats and not partake. We have people that do that every week for different reasons. So um, join us down that, and then Jason will come and lead us in one more song.